That person needs to hear a message of hope that acknowledges their strengths and the capacity for a continued life of meaning. And that requires talking about stress in a way that doesn't make people feel fragile. Welcome to Sweat the Technique. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ryan Hill. And this is a podcast from a bunch of veteran educators all about how to apply the lessons that we learned in the school buildings outside of school. So that's parenting, that's learning hobbies, that's sports, that's in your professional life. And some of our co-hosts have written whole books about this and work outside of the field of K-12. And a lot of us have just been spending our lives applying the lessons learned within our schools. And Ryan Hill is here with me today. And Ryan, you have been talking to me about this book or this general set of theories from this woman named Dr. Kelly McGonigal. You want to talk a little bit about who she is and why you've been so pumped to bring her on this podcast? Yeah. So Dr. McGonigal is a health psychologist. She's a lecturer at Stanford. Her TED Talk has 30 million views and she's written a bunch of books, but the one that really that introduced me to her anyways is the one called The Upside of Stress. And when I saw that, I had seen it recommended by a number of people on Twitter and so on. With the title, I was like, what? Upside of stress, how could that even be a thing? And the book was just packed with data, you know, research, analysis. And I thought this is extremely relevant to parents who are trying to figure out how to work with their kids who are stressed in a million different situations, to the parents themselves managing their own stress, and also to teachers themselves and working with students. And there was one anecdote in the book about a study about students who go off to college and have a sense of belonging that I immediately just photocopied it and sent it to our director of Kip Through College, who works with our alumni, because it's, it's just such an important story and lesson for our kids. So I thought there was a lot of good stuff in here, and it would be a fascinating conversation. Yeah, and I would add some more context to here. So professional life, like if you've got stress in your business, like you're you're not meeting your goals and you got to rally the team or somebody quit who is in a critical role, or if you play sports and you get a little bit hyped up before a game, you get nervous or you're, you know, have to do public speaking. Like these are all different areas of life where we feel stress. And this book reframes that stress and says, hey, this could be a positive if you think about it the right way. Yeah, I used the term managed stress earlier, but that was actually the wrong word. This isn't about diminishing the negative effects. It's actually about making stress a positive in your life, which I thought was an important lesson, as you said, for anybody in any role. Yeah, so let's just get into it. Really excited to talk to her. And listeners, I know you'll get a lot of value out of this. So let's get right at it. Dr. McGonagall, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. All right, well, let's get into this. So I've been under this impression that stress is just bad, straight up. Mm -hmm. Like full stop, stress is bad for you. Am I wrong about that? Yes, although it totally is natural to feel that way, uh, in part because we've gotten lots of messages from every field, psychology, medicine, telling us that stress is bad, really highlighting the harmful effects of stress. And then we're human and we are motivated to avoid pain and discomfort and stress is often painful and uncomfortable. So it makes sense that we would pay attention mostly to the negative effects of stress or the fact that it's not always fun to be stressed. But there's an enormous amount of research that points to the fact that human beings get stressed because stress is a biological mechanism for responding to life and learning from life. And if you define stress as not like all the stuff happening in the world that we wish were not happening, 
that we didn't have to deal with, people didn't have to go through. If you change your definition of stress to what arises in your body and in your brain in a moment that matters, in a moment that requires responding, in a moment that requires reaching out. If you understand that stress is this biological capacity to help you meet this moment, to help you connect with your community, to help you learn from the experience, then we can start to understand why, okay, stress is not necessarily the enemy. And it turns out that when we embrace not what's happening necessarily, like not like bring on the trauma, bring on the bad events, not that kind of embracing stress, but starting to trust a little bit more in our capacity to deal with life. There are tremendous benefits from that. So that's really what my work focuses on is taking a mindset towards stress that says, it's okay if you don't want to be stressed, but life is stressful. It's often a sign of meaning or a sign that this moment matters. And when you feel stressed, you can turn your attention to all the different ways that human beings have of rising to the challenge of learning and adapting and growing and coming together and supporting one another. That's stress too. Well, talk about this 1998. I don't know if the study was in 1998, but there was 30,000 adults who are asked how much stress they experienced in the past year. And tell us what this data told us about, it's not just whether you've experienced stress, it's how you think about your own stress, right? Yeah, so this was a study that was published in 2011. I mentioned this study in my TED talk because this was a real like aha moment for me that made me rethink how I talk about stress and teach about stress because I'm a health psychologist. So I was trained to tell everyone, if you're stressed, it's bad for you. So you better not be stressed. And then I was teaching a course that summer on the science of stress. And I came across a study where the abstract and the title, initially I thought it was gonna be another study proving that stress is bad for you. And I was like, great, another big study proving that stress is bad. But then when I actually read it, what I saw was that it was a study that had uh, tracked, I think it was like 30,000 adults for about a decade in the US. And at the beginning of the study, they'd asked them, how stressful is your life, but also, do you believe that stress is harmful for your health? And they use both of those responses to predict who died over the next decade. And what they found was this really interesting interaction effect. So you were not more likely to die if your life was stressful, unless you really strongly believe that stress is harmful for your health. People who had the most stressful lives but did not strongly believe that their stress was bad for them, they were the most likely to be alive at the end of the decade. It was the people who had really stressful lives and were also really convinced that stress was harming them, that were at an increased risk of dying of any cause over the next decade. Now, there's a lot of like, the scientist in me wants to put all these caveats on it. Like, you know, there's lots of ways to explain that. But the reason that that study got my attention is, is it possible that how you think about stress can be as important as the presence or absence of stress when it comes to things we really care about, not only are you alive, but also the quality of your life and your relationships and your mental health. So I began to look for research that might help me figure out, am I doing more harm than good by going out there telling everyone if your life is stressful, you're doomed, which really was what we were taught to do, as if we could just choose to lead less stressful lives, which actually is very hard to do. I don't recommend that <laughs> as your, your primary pursuit in life. So that study was, was a real wake-up call for me. And there's much more experimental work longitudinal work suggesting that indeed, if you change your mindset about stress, when you can't make life less stressful, it's very protective. And you can avoid some of what we might think of as the 
inevitable negative effects of chronic stress or traumatic stress. So, you know, things like health problems, new mental health challenges, even like really tangible outcomes like are you likely to get divorced? Are you likely to get fired from your job? Things we think of as stressful. Actually, the way we think about stress can sometimes increase our risk of experiencing those very stressful outcomes. It's a, something called stress generation. Like the more you think stress is awful for you, the more you avoid dealing with stress, like having those difficult conversations or really figuring out how you're going to approach a, a problem. And the more you avoid stress, the more the actual stress just piles up. And you, you know, you deal with the consequences of it. Is it just as easy as today? I think stress is bad for me and tomorrow I'm like, guess it's not. So now it won't be. What do you have to do? Yeah, well, let me, I can give you some <laughs> real world data on that. So I read that study in 2011 and I gave that TED talk in 2013. I've changed my mind about stress and now I want you to also. And I've spent the last decade trying to figure out, all right, folks, how do we actually change our mindsets towards stress? Because again, we're, we're competing against this very natural instinct to ourselves, one, to avoid stress, and also to want to acknowledge the stress that's in the world because we want to reduce it, right? We want to make life better. There's a really strong belief system that avoiding stress is the most important thing because we don't want ourselves to suffer or others to suffer. So there are a couple of things that can help with changing your mindset. And then I know we're going to talk a little bit about mindset interventions, including yeah, at the school level helping young people. Because by the way, something very interesting, some researchers who have studied stress mindset and they found that having a more positive mindset towards stress, which means understanding that stress is inevitable and natural. So being stressed does not mean there's something uniquely wrong with you or your life. So that's sort of part of what it means to have a positive stress mindset is you aren't expecting a life free of stress and you don't believe that stress means you are inadequate to life. Like a lot of people do. A lot of people are like, if school is hard, it's because I can't cut it. I shouldn't be here. If parenting is hard, it's because I shouldn't be a parent. If my job is hard and I'm stressed out, it's because I shouldn't have this job. I can't handle it. Okay. So part of a positive stress mindset is understanding that it's natural and believing that it can help you, that it can remind you of what you care about, that it is often an opportunity to learn and grow, that it can help you connect with others. It can be a catalyst for strengthening relationships. It can give you energy or purpose, right? So this is what it means to have a positive stress mindset. And also believing that there is always a way to respond even if you can't control the stress. That's like a newer understanding of what a positive stress mindset is. This idea that you have a lot of different response options. It's not just, I have to fix the problem or I have to get drunk and escape the feeling. Like there's in between, there's a lot of ways we can respond to stress that are helpful. So that's what a positive stress mindset is. And young people have the most negative stress mindset. They went out there and they asked everybody. They asked Navy SEALs who have the highest stress mindset, most positive. They asked people who work in different industries, people of different ages. And at the time of the study, a few years ago, it was young students, like high school students, who had the most negative stress mindset. They have truly gotten the message that stress is bad for you and you should avoid stress. So I think that that is a problem we will see unfold since we know that a negative stress mindset can often lead to poor coping decisions. It strikes me that maybe the some of the rise in helicopter parenting might be contributing to that dynamic that you're describing where parents are trying to avoid stressful situations for their kids as much as possible. We know in education that productive struggle is fundamental to learning. You can't learn a math problem by being told the answer. You have to work through it. 
I'm wondering if you're seeing connections to that and the mindsets of the younger generation in particular. Yeah. Helicopter parenting, snowplow parenting. I know there's another name for whatever the next level is. I haven't even caught on. Yeah. It, you know, it's interesting. So I used to teach undergrads at Stanford in the psychology department. And I remember even seeing there was like a turning point where the students were just less, they had less coping self-efficacy. There was a big change. It was like 2006, 2007, where they didn't trust themselves as much to handle things that were stressful. And so I'm sure that that part of that is a product of having received the message that I don't want you to experience stress because I don't think you can handle it. That, that sometimes comes from those caring parenting behaviors, which really come from a, a honorable, wonderful place of not wanting your child to suffer. And one of the things that when I talk to parents, you know, it's not like all forms of stress are equally harmful or equally helpful. And for kids, there is a particular kind of stress that is really harmful. And it is the sense that your caregivers, whether they're your parents or, or other caregivers, don't love you unconditionally and are not on your side. Like that's the one. And you don't necessarily need to protect your kids from all the other stuff that, that loving, caring parents want to protect their kids from. Caregivers who spend a lot of time investing in that felt sense of security in the relationship, that's where the investment should go, not the investment in trying to protect kids from either ordinary experiences of stress and setback, like not doing well in a class or not getting on a sports team, like really basic stuff, conflict in friendships, but then also trusting that your kid can handle the big stuff also with the right support, right? Because you can't always control how your child is exposed to the, the big stressors or the traumatic events. And even in that, even in those contexts, where we know the stress can have negative lasting effects, there's something really powerful about having the people in your life believe that this is not going to destroy you. And that's part of what a, a positive stress mindset is, is to be able to acknowledge the harmful effects of stress we go through while also having this kind of faith that human beings are capable of coming back, You know, to have a, a faith in a redemption narrative, contribution narrative, all of these ways that we can turn our own stress and adversity into something that is of value to us and sort of how we think about who we are and also what we offer to the world. And um, there's research that parents who hold that mindset for their kids, right? It's, it's a really important message for kids to get this kind of belief and faith in the kid's capacity to, you know, not, not be like Teflon, like nothing affects you, but to have this ability to over time transform that adversity into strengths and meaning and contribution. I think one of the hardest parts of this, when I talk to parents, I think they get it in theory, but every little decision, do I let my kid cross the street on their own? Do I let them take the subway? Do I let them go to the playground where I know that they're likely to encounter a bully? and deal with it on their own. Every little decision, they think of, well, here's the worst case scenario, and obviously I wanna avoid the worst case scenario. So like they theoretically understand what you're saying, but in practice, they find it so hard to be like, all right, I'm going to expose my kid to risk because they're afraid. I've also worked in behavior change and self-control. And one of the things we know is that when people are making decisions, there's often a hidden zero, like a, a hidden cost. And so when you're making a choice, 
you don't see what the cost is of making that choice, particularly when it's an aggregate cost. So if you're thinking, is it a risk to let my kid, you know, skateboard? It's a physical risk, certainly. Maybe it's a social risk. Do I want to remove that risk? And all you can imagine is this great win of removing a risk in this moment. But you're not thinking, all right, do I want my child to become an adult who has had an experience of pursuing meaningful risk or not? That every time you make that choice, you're, you're actually giving away something that you might value. So just like, you know, when somebody's deciding whether to smoke a cigarette or not, what to think like, what is it that I am not choosing when I prioritize my comfort in this moment, what I believe to be a potential risk, no matter how small. It's not something that an outside an outsider should be able to tell a parent where to put that threshold. But I do think that part of what it means to get better at stress is to decide that some risks are worthwhile in terms of allowing people to pursue a life that has meaning. And you have these sort of frameworks that you suggest to the reader, like different ways to think about different encounters with stress that you have in your mm -hmm. life. Do you mind just laying out a few of these? Yeah, because right. not every coping strategy is ideal for every type of stress. So one of the first I take on is performance stress. So that's when there's something that you need to do and it's important to you. And that can bring up a lot of self-doubt, a lot of anxiety, sometimes pure panic. So maybe, you know, for a student, it would be an exam or an audition or an athletic competition. For adults, it's often, you know, an important event at work or sometimes a difficult conversation that you need to have with a, a loved one. But it's like, this is something I know I need to do. And I actually, like, I want to do it and I want to do it well. That type of stress we know that one of the best ways to increase your ability to rise to the challenge, like to meet that moment with your best self, is to actually accept all of the uncomfortable feelings that come along with it, to literally embrace something like the fact that your heart is pounding, or maybe you're breathing faster, or you've got butterflies in your stomach that sometimes feel a lot more aggressive than butterflies or some other stuff in there. And when you say, okay, I know what's happening in my body right now. This is my body getting ready to rise to the challenge. It's adrenaline, it's cortisol, it's glucose going into my bloodstream to give me energy. And that cortisol is going to help me mobilize that energy. And that adrenaline is going to, you know, help me be brave in this moment and perform. When we interpret the physical symptoms of stress, which are the, like the, most common thing that people report when they're feeling performance stress, like you feel it in your body. It's not a thought. It's like sometimes it's sometimes it's excitement and sometimes it's pure terror. Accepting it actually transforms what's happening in the body and the brain in a way that helps people truly rise to the challenge. So this has been shown, for example, um, students who have test anxiety, particularly math anxiety, right? We know that's huge. That when students learn before an exam, if they're feeling stressed and they feel it, to say to themselves, ah, totally makes sense. This anxiety, this stress, it's because I care. And this anxiety and stress could even be helping me, which by the way is true, right? The research is very clear. In most performance situations, you are better off being physiologically stressed than relaxed, particularly if you understand that you can channel that energy. So those students who are given that mindset intervention, they feel more confident, they objectively do better on exams, and they also, by the way, are, are less likely to avoid engaging with whatever the subject is that creates the anxiety. So not only it's not only like this moment to moment thing where 
right before the exam, I'm sitting there and I'm getting ready to take the exam. In that moment, I can say to myself, okay, it makes sense that I'm anxious. I don't need to take 10 breaths and calm down. I can take the test while being anxious. It's okay. My stresses can help me. That matters and will help you do better on the test. But also just even knowing that, it makes it more likely that that student is going to study, that that student is going to do their homework because they're not so overwhelmed by a feeling of anxiety that comes up whenever they are confronted with the fact that it's not easy for them or that they have to go through this process of getting things wrong and figuring it out. There's something really powerful about accepting stress that allows us to engage with the sources of stress that we need to engage with, either because they're meaningful or because we cannot escape them. And that's most stress. Speaking of students, our schools serve mostly African-American and Latino students, and our alumni oftentimes will go to college and we support them through their college journey. And they'll come back to us and say, especially early on, oftentimes either I don't look like a lot of the other kids in my school or they'll reflect a lack of belonging or imposter mm -hmm. syndrome. I thought the, um, I think it was a Jameson study in your book was really fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about that? So Jeremy Jameson did the research on embracing anxiety, including some of the exam stuff. I think you might be thinking of the Walton study. Oh, the Walton study. Yeah, it was the Walton study. You're right. Yeah, those are also... There's a lot of studies um, <laughs> that, that, that point to some similar things. So Greg Walton and, and David Yeager and, and Jeffrey Cohen, they've done these interesting interventions trying to help people who might typically feel like they don't belong or feel held back by their circumstances to create these mindsets of both belonging and also um, common humanity, like everyone struggles, everyone feels like they don't fit in. And also change the belief that people can change. So there's like there, there are these different mindsets that all support people, particularly when your life has been challenging. So one of the things that was really important to me when I wrote this book and, and when I talk about this stuff is I tend to overemphasize the ideas that have been especially useful for people who are dealing with big stress. So I'm looking for studies that were more useful for black and Latino students than necessarily white students. I'm looking for that because I think it's important. So a lot of the stuff that I talk about has been shown to be especially helpful when life has been very stressful. And I, I have to point that out because when I first started talking about this stuff, I would hear from a lot of people, oh, you're just talking about people who aren't really stressed, who have never struggled, who don't deal with racism, who haven't dealt with poverty, who haven't lost a parent, like, you know, you're just talking about easy stress, like, oh, you know, did my friend smile at me today or whatever? That's not easy stress either. I mean, we need to have empathy, but you, you know what I mean. And actually, no. So the, the interventions that I'm most um, interested in that I tend to talk about the most, whether or not I always explicitly say it, is the stuff that it has the most impact for people who have had the most stress. So one of these studies, probably the one you're thinking of about belonging, particularly when you, you get to college, was this really simple intervention. They had people show up freshman year and they learned about how most people who arrive at this Ivy League institution worry that they like got in by accident, which is a very common concern. There is a sense like, I don't really belong here. I don't know if I am smart enough, if I have the right background, if I'll fit in. Almost everyone has that to some degree. Not a lot of people talk about it. And so people sometimes think that it actually means something about them, that they have these concerns. So they read a little bit about that. They heard that this was a pretty universal concern. And then they were asked to make videos talking about how that was true in their own experience, particularly 
for next year's incoming freshmen. I just love this intervention, right? So I just say to you, a lot of a lot of freshmen feel like they don't belong or they worry if they they really should be here. Is that true for you? And if it's true for you, like could we make a little video of you saying that so we can show it to next year's freshmen so that when they arrive, they'll know it's not just them. Oh, I love it. It's like it's like transforming your own stress into a way of helping others like really reinforce that common humanity. So the uh, freshman who got this intervention, it completely erased the usual racial gap in GPA by the time they were graduating. So black students had GPAs as high as non-black students by the time they graduated. If they got this intervention, there were other really interesting outcomes. People were more likely to find a mentor. They were more likely to form positive social relationships. They had better interpretations of stress and setbacks. So they were less likely to think that a setback they experienced meant they didn't belong there after all. You know, it was differences in how they interacted with other people and with the community at the school they were at that led to this upward spiral. And so the reason I, I talk about that study is because it's one of the few that really looks at the long upward spiral of some of these mindset interventions, which is it's not magic. It's that if you have an idea that got in there, and particularly if you were able to engage with that, that idea in a way that feels true to you and you were given an opportunity to express it again, to share it with others, it's there for you when you need it. So when you don't do well on your, your first exam in a class, do you think it's time to get on the bus and go home? Or do you think maybe it would be okay if I went to office hours or I asked my TA for help? Like it wouldn't reveal that I don't belong here that would just be like a smart thing to do. And then it changes these coping behaviors in ways that are really helpful. So I think, you know, the elephant in the room, we've kind of alluded to it at this point, is something is changing in the way that we talk to young people about stress. I think there's this sense out there that there's been a shift over time, over the past few decades. You know, this is, I think, driving this helicopter parenting. I mean, there are these books like The Coddling of the American Mind and George Bonanno's book, The End of Trauma, and all these books that are being written. There's just this sense that something has changed, right? Yeah. And it's in certain corners of society, it's, it's very sweeping claims being made about it. It's very politicized. What's your sense of that? story? Like, has something changed? Absolutely. Something has changed. And here is, this is, so there is a huge challenge that we face people who are interested in this because there is clear and compelling evidence that especially certain, certain types of stress and certain kind of timelines of stress, like early childhood negative experiences have a really big impact on your physiology, your psychology, your, your relationships, a negative impact, right? It's very clear that this is true. And so there's a real need for people who are advocates for changing policies and systems and other things that support the well-being of humans. Like, we need that. However, when you change the scale to the individual functioning, it is very helpful for an individual to believe that they are not damaged by their stress. So what... We need people out there being like, look, we can't have kids dealing with this level of trauma and fear. We need to change how the school works, how society works. We need to get it out there and politics. That is super important. But what the kid needs to believe is that whatever stress they're dealing with, they are adequate to their own lives and that there is something that they can do, something they can choose. It's okay to ask for help because stress is a natural part of life. And there are other messages like that. 
this idea that you don't have to hide your stress, that you can reach out, that it's okay, that you can learn and grow from stress. I mean, like, you know, there's this wonderful study that found that a positive stress mindset, you follow these teenagers and they experience something traumatic. They're more likely to start to make a story that involves meaning and post-traumatic growth if they had a positive stress mindset before that experience happened. So if you care about individuals, you want them to believe that they are strong and capable and resilient. But as a lot of people have pointed out, if you aren't doing the other stuff, it can end up becoming this whole thing where you're like putting the burden of rising up and being resilient on individuals who need resources. So I think like that's where, that's where I see the tension is that sometimes we get confused at what scale we should be talking to each other and one another about. And because I'm a psychologist, the context I find myself in is almost always somebody who has endured something unimaginable and they want to know if they even want to keep living. That person needs to hear a message of hope that acknowledges their strengths and the capacity for, for a continued life of meaning. And that requires talking about stress in a way that doesn't make people feel fragile. But if you're interested in changing systems, right, you need to address the, the harmful effect. So, you know, it's a tough one. Well, you talk about mindfulness, right? So mm-hmm. let me just kind of do a little lightning round here of okay. a couple of different interventions on top of some of the frameworks that you've mentioned. Mm-hmm. So meditation and mindfulness, like how important is this as a tool in the toolkit. I know you want lightning rounds. I have such nuanced opinions about all of this. <laughs> no, okay. Don't lightning. Maybe more thunder than lightning. Take more time. Um, you know, mindfulness is mindfulness is a skill that really comes in handy when you're in pain. And I think of the the key benefit of mindfulness is actually distress tolerance. So I think it's a really important toolbox for people to be able to be with internal experiences they don't want. And in that moment, to make room for something else as well, whether it's focusing on your breath, whether it's asking someone to hold your hand, whether it's taking a positive action or distraction without having to completely fall apart or or numb yourself. Like that to me is the key benefit. There's plenty of other spiritual and mental things you can strive for. But for me, at the end of the day, it's can you can you handle the moments that are really hard? So I think that that's. That's not necessarily how mindfulness is taught, Mm -hmm. (laughs) particularly to kids. So I don't know that I would prioritize mindfulness as an intervention necessarily in schools, but well, give me your next intervention before I start making them up. Okay. Journaling. Oh yeah. Uh, You know, there are a couple of journaling exercises that seem to be pretty helpful. One is writing about your values and what's meaningful to you. That's been demonstrated to be helpful across very, I would say across the lifespan, but like it really young kids. I think the youngest study I've seen was with like eight-year-olds who were, were doing this, maybe even younger. Writing about negative experiences has been shown to be helpful. I think that's something that's probably best accomplished with support, not like DIY. Yep. Is there anything I'm missing? I mean, there are things that are more out there, right? What about exercise? Oh, uh, physical oh, yes. activity. Yes. There you go. Yeah. Physical activity beyond sports. Sports can be great for a lot of people. But I mean, if you want, if you want to, so we're talking about mindsets, but I, there's a whole other body of research, uh, one that I'm like very deeply committed to because I'm also an exercise instructor 
is you can physiologically increase your capacity to, to deal with stress and to experience positive emotions, joy, connection. You can just go in there biologically. Like you don't have to think about it. We know that challenging your body, teaching your body how to mobilize energy, doing things that are hard and often doing them, you know, outdoors or in positive social contexts, they just, they change your physiology at the level of brain chemistry, brain function, brain structure, the myokines that are floating around in your bloodstream, affecting every system of your body, including your brain and your stress resilience. So if you were to tell me something important to do, I would say get kids moving in a way that is not humiliating, that gives people opportunities to feel good about themselves and connect with others. Great. Anything else I'm missing? Like anything on your radar intervention wise? Well, helping other people. If you look at who handles stress well, often it's people who are embedded in social relationships in which they feel valued. So there are a lot of ways to, to get there. And there are, there are a lot of things that can be barriers to that. But if I wanted to tell someone, how do you do it? If you don't currently feel like you have a lot of people in your life who see you and value you and care about you, the fastest way to get that is to look for a place to be of service to others. And in a real way, not in a show up once and plant a tree, not like, like the you know school field trip that happens once, but like <laughs> join an organization where you're planting trees every week and you're meeting people who are happy you showed up to plant trees. And then you walk down, you're like, hey, that's a tree I planted. You know, so finding a, a place to be of service where other people see you being of service and maybe even receive the benefits of your presence, your personality, your contributions, uh, hugely important for mental health. And again, there are studies showing that the ability to help others is a real protective factor against academic stress and social stress for, for young adults and teens. So, and again, that's, it's a kind of thing, like it's not a one, like a once and done thing, but certainly if a parent were to ask me, what should I get my kids involved in? What should I be really supporting? Something related to movement, something related to being of use to others and any activity where you feel where the kid can feel an ideal sense of fit between who they are and what that activity requires of them. You know, that's another aspect of belonging. And a lot of these things are really approach oriented. They are not the protection. It's go out there and do stuff. That's very protective. One intervention we haven't talked a lot about, but I'd be interested in your opinion on is therapy. Yes. As it's currently practiced in society right now, like obviously therapy could look very different. You know, sometimes it could involve hallucinogenics. Sometimes it could involve one approach or sometimes it involves another approach. Mm -hmm. But like as it's commonly practiced in the United States, I have this vague sense that sometimes it's driving stress, but mm -hmm. I'm not completely sure about that. What's your, what's your sense when you think about it as an intervention? Do you think it's helping, hurting, or are you not sure? I think one of the main benefits of therapy as it's commonly practiced, especially with young people, is it really is psychoeducation. People are not born understanding how their emotions work. They aren't born understanding that you don't have to believe every thought that you have. You know, people don't necessarily know that you can take action before you feel like it and that taking action can change your experience. So I think there's a lot of what I would consider just understanding how the mind works 
and understanding how you work as a human being, I think a lot of that's going on in a lot of different approaches to therapy. And that's a, a huge win. It's, it's so important. So I, you know, I don't, I don't know if there are instances like what you're describing, but I think that there's, and there's also these new waves of therapy that I think really align well with the type of things we've been talking about, things like acceptance and commitment therapy, which is all about getting clear about your values, learning to tolerate distress, focusing on actions and choices that you can make, developing cognitive flexibility, trying on new ways of thinking and acting so that you, you have new experiences and build relationships. Um, so I don't have a lot of concerns. Um, I certainly wouldn't discourage people from seeking out therapy or anything else that is supportive. You know, as a scientist, I'm always just thinking probably, you know, more solutions interacting with one another. That seems like a good strategy to pursue. You spend a lot of time on a college campus with students. Mm -hmm. Some of the things you're telling me, I can imagine in a certain climate, especially over the past few years, have you received a lot of heat for this theory? Or has it been a reasonable back and forth on the college campus surrounding your ideas? I mean, you know, what I hear from students themselves is really the only way they interact with these ideas is my TED Talk from 2013. A lot of them have seen it. And they'll say things like, your TED Talk really helped me. I used to watch your TED Talk before like every exam, something like that. I haven't, I haven't experienced any controversy in part because... I think the the level at which I'm actually operating is again almost always at the level of just talking to individual human beings. So I'm I'm actually not I, I appreciate this podcast and what we're doing, but I'm not a policy person. I am somebody who's just trying to often I find myself meeting people who are in a difficult place who want hope. So I'm not really out there advocating for massive change or telling people they're wrong if they're, if they're stressed or like you're doing stress wrong. And I can see how a lot of these ideas can be quite controversial, particularly as I said earlier, if they are perceived as being used to eliminate the need to actually help people, like to try to turn all improvement into self-improvement that has to happen at the level of your mindset, which is not something that I would ever argue for. I think there's also, I kind of got at this earlier in the very beginning, it's like you read it and it's almost like it's too easy, right? Like you're not saying suck it up and like no. deal with the stress, but it is almost as easy as like you have to just change how you think about stress or change how you think about belonging in college or whatever it is. And if you don't read the whole thing and you just get that headline, I could see people objecting on those grounds. Yeah. And it's not necessarily easy, but it's more like, well, you're living in your head anyways to try on a few different things. So like one of the questions that I'll often have people consider, um, so we know that stress can be really, some of the most harmful stress is when it creates a contamination narrative or a chaos narrative. So something happened in your life. Maybe um, you had to leave school, like you you did not pass your classes and you're out, or you broke up with an important relationship, or you have a health diagnosis that means you're not going to have the experience of health in your body that you thought you would have in this life. Okay, so something like that. Do you believe that that event has contaminated who you are and what is possible for you? Do you have a chaos narrative in which you now say, well, I thought life was going to be this way. And now that it's different than the plan I had, nothing is controllable. Nothing is attainable. It's all chaos and, and disaster. So 
what I will just do is if people are in that headspace, be like, well, you know what? Like, let's just, let's try on a different narrative. What if it were 10 years from now and things have turned out better than you're, you're expecting right now? And this was the turning point, this moment, this was the turning point. Like, let's just make something up. What do you think you did that made this the turning point? What did you do? What were you thinking about? What did you try? What happened? Come up with a different narrative. Like, this is the kind of thing that I'm, I'm suggesting. It's not so much an intellectual argument like stress is good. It's about believing in your capacity to let stress activate what is already good in you and good in your community. Well, Dr. McGonagall, I think that's a good place to end here. Thank you so much for joining us today. Is there anything you want to plug for our audience? Adopt a pet. That's what I would really like to plug right now is pet adoption and welfare. I know you probably thought it was like a book or something. But well, my sister works at a, my sister works at the biggest pet adoption agency in Denver. So fabulous. Well, you know, because having a pet is a great source of resilience. They will love you. They give you a way to contribute. They depend on you. So when life is awful, but you still have to get up and feed the cat or walk the dog, you still have a reason to live. Pets are the thing. All right. Well, thank you so much. And yes, go out there and buy one of your many books out there. So <laughs> what was the most recent book? So maybe we could direct the audience to that. The Joy of Movement. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much. 